Well, open your Bibles and look with me at Exodus chapter 34 that we just read a moment ago. And we are in this unique passage through really all of Exodus, in many ways all of the Old Testament. Uh, In a way, this passage reverberates throughout the whole Bible as the great hope of all the faithful looking to this God as revealed here in Exodus 34. You might say in the Old Testament especially, no passage shows off the greatness of God than this one. Great is the Lord, Psalm 145 says, and greatly then to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And yet immediately, especially from the world, I think some are going to ask, well, or is it? Is He really that great? Certainly not everybody thinks so, such that you even had a book by the title, written by the now deceased Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great, where he makes even in the book the blasphemous claim that the cobbled together ancient Jewish books had an ill-tempered, implacable, bloody, provincial God who was probably more frightening when he was in a good mood. And the New Testament was not exempt from his ridicule. Looking at the crowning event of the Christian gospel, again, in his book, God is Not Great, he's looking at Jesus' death on the cross and Hitchens reasons like this. He says, For a start, and in order to gain the benefit of this wondrous gospel offer, I have to accept that I'm responsible for the flogging and mocking and crucifixion in which I had no say and no part. For Hitchens, that does not sound at all like good news, but an atrocity. That's nothing appealing. It's gross. It needs to be rejected. It's anything but great. Well, is Hitchens right? Is God great as God himself claims to be? And of course he is. That's why we're here. He is great. He is glorious. And the irony is, as Hitchens looks at the cross and he sees an atrocity, we look at the cross even this very morning and we will actually see the very glory of God in its fullest display. But this is where the character of God is displayed in the full and in full living color, not in shadows, but in the brightness of Christ. Hitchens missed it. And I submit to you it's because he either didn't really understand or he could not understand. And it's not because he wasn't a smart man. Oh, he was very intelligent and had a way with words. But he couldn't see it because in large measure, he greatly overestimated the goodness of man, even his own. He failed to reckon with how evil we really are. And for this, he never came to then see the true glory of God that meets us in our need of great evil. To see a a God of glorious grace that can overcome such sins, such evils that reside in the very deepest part of us. So as we look to Exodus 34, this is it. God displays His glorious character, His glory, His greatness, His majesty in no greater way than in meeting your deepest needs. And as we've been walking through Exodus, we've seen it time and again. Your deepest need is because of your rebellion and sin against God. And it goes deeper and far more rooted than you can pull out yourself. You need a God of grace who can meet that need. And that's where he shows off his glory. So we're going to see it. We're going to see our need for it. And so then see his glory in response to it. So in the first place, we see this. To see our need, we see in the first place, we need a second chance. How's the glory of God get on display? Well, it's because we are such a desperate need for a restart, a second chance with God. Let's look at verses 1 to 4. 
We descend here back into Exodus, and we're wading into the aftermath of Israel's idolatrous disobedience, this making of this idol, this golden calf. And for this, in God's just holiness, because of their rebellion, obeying, disobeying those commandments, God in his righteous wrath says, well, Moses, I'm just going to wipe them out, and let's just start over with you. You'll be my people, and we'll make a new nation. Of course, Moses pleads with God, and the Lord relents. And then even as the Lord relented and he said, okay, I'm not going to wipe you out. I'm going to keep my promises. I'm going to give you the promised land. But here's the thing. I can't go with you. Even though we're going to build this tent and this beautiful life and house together, right? And I'm going to go with you and live in your midst. We can't do that because you're so stiff-necked. Remember this expression? You're so bent on rebellion. You're so bent on going your own way in your sin. If my holiness gets close, I'm just going to have to wipe you out. That's what justice demands. I can't go with you. Again, we saw this two weeks ago, Moses pleads with God and God agrees to go. Agrees basically to have a relationship do-over. And that's where we begin in verses one to four. We have this second chance, a second chance of this whole relationship with God thing. A relationship they had broken by their sinful disobedience. And this second chance is pictured or symbolized by a remaking of those stone tablets. Look at verse one. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Now, you remember the stone tablets, whether you were with us in Exodus or you saw that movie with Charlton Heston or the pictures, the guy holding the stone tablets, right? There were two stone tablets, though, and what did they represent? They had on them the Ten Commandments, but we talked about what was their significance because they do symbolize something. Something that they symbolize ultimately is their very relationship with God. Those stone tablets illustrated, pictured that they had a relationship with with God and they were in with him, you might say. Because remember, there were two stone tablets and that wasn't because you couldn't fit all 10 commandments on one stone tablet. You could write smaller, right? The point was you had two stone tablets because you needed two copies, Like when you go purchase something and they give you a receipt, or let's say when you buy a house and you have to sign your name, I don't remember how many times, and they give you the PDF copies now, I guess is how it works. But you're going to have a copy of what you signed, a, a copy of the relationship you now have bargained with. And that's in a way what these commandments are. They are proof of purchase that you have a relationship with God. They were the, the stipulations on how you're supposed to live as God's people. And of course, as Moses received those from God and he was going to have this, these people are going to have this close relationship with God, he's coming down the mountain and the first thing he sees with Israel is that they are in rebellion, taking the opening commandments and breaking them out of the gate, making the golden calf, engaging in sexual morality and worse. And in response to this, Moses parrots God's own response a little bit earlier, such that Moses literally throws, casts away those golden, or not the golden, but the stone tablets, and they fall there at the bottom of the mountain. They shatter and break. And again, what do these tablets symbolize? Their very relationship with God that they broke by their sin, such that their relationship with God now, it's in shambles. It's broken to little pieces. And the king and all his men could never put this back together. And so now God's telling Moses, well, let's try this again. Get some tablets back. Such that he's told in verse 4, and notice the emphasis of this. 
Verse 4, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him, and he took his in his hand two tablets of stone. So it's all about these tablets, all about these tablets. Again, because what do they represent? They're now another chance at a relationship. You broke it with your sin. It was symbolized by these broken tablets, but God's saying, make some new stone tablets. Let's try this again. Let's have a do-over. Now, if you like games and competitions, you probably know about do-overs. I do in my family. I, I love competition. It's probably pride. I'm sure of it, actually. It's not probably. Uh, but I just love to compete, and it's so much fun. But if you compete, uh, say even in a board game, what are you supposed to do when the die is rolled and then falls off the table? Okay, I'll tell you this, you want to talk about that before it happens, is what you want to do. And actually, you want to be rolling into the box, okay, so it doesn't fall on the table. But you might say, when it rolls and falls off the table, let's have a do-over, re-roll it, right? Or sometimes you agree, whatever it is on the ground, go find it. But, or if you're playing like a, a game with boundaries, you know, a lot of people playing pickleball these days, or like tennis, and, and nobody quite knows whether the ball was in or out, it was so close, so what do you do? You might say, well, let's have a do-over. It was so close, nobody can make the call. Let's try it again. In those cases, like in sports and competition, we have a do-over because we're not sure what's fair. We don't know whether it was in or out or what the number was on the die. So let's just do it over, pretend like that didn't happen, and we'll, have, we'll try and figure out what's fair. Well, understand here, the do-over has nothing to do with fair. The thing that this relationship has happened to it, it's just broken. And so fairness would be, it's over. You had your chance and you broke the commandments. This isn't all about fair. They broke the covenant such that it was shattered on the mountain. And get this, that's exactly what sin is like with God and your relationship with him. It breaks something that you cannot fix. You can't go back and make it right. You can't make God forget. You can't make it up to him and try and do a crack that no amount of spackle could ever fill. And just like it was pictured here with Israel, that's what our sin has done with God. It's severed any relationship we could have had, and it's just now all in shambles. In other words, what's the point? You have no claim on God. You can't force his hand. In other words, he doesn't owe you anything good. And here, he doesn't owe Israel a second chance, and he doesn't owe you one either. Your sin has earned for yourself a spiritual death penalty such that if we leave it there, as much as it's in your hands, it's over. If God does not, and here's the point, of course, graciously, mercifully, gratuitously, freely, undeservedly give us another chance, there's nothing you can do about it. We're lost. We don't deserve another shot. We took something so good in the mercy of God and we flaunted it and we turned from it. Give you another chance. We are at his whim. And so what are we to do with this? Well, know in Christ, even as you hear my voice, he's giving you a second chance right now. He's giving you a do-over. 
in his gospel word about Jesus Christ, he's giving us a do-over. This is your undeserved second chance. You didn't earn a spot here today. You didn't figure it out and and come and, and sit to hear the mercy of God. There's nothing you had to do with this. So the question is, he's giving you the second chance. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to ignore it again? And maybe for some in this room, it's not your second. It's your third, your fourth, your 40th chance. And note this, you are not promised one more. Turn today. Repent today. Take that chance now with Jesus Christ and turn to him. That's what you need. You need it so bad. Thankfully, this is the kind of God that can give it. That's what we see next. And this summarizes really who he is. We need a gracious God. And again, this displays his mercy, his glory, is that he is a grace-filled God. And we see that in verses 5 to 7, especially the first part of verse 7. Really, you might say it, the only reason there ever would be a second chance is because we got a God like this, a God who's filled with grace. And really, this is truly where his glory shines the brightest in our hearts. But we got to set up the text again, because if you haven't been with us, or just by way of reminder. In verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses asks God, oh, please show me your glory. Again, Moses gets that Israel have been dead to rights by their rebellion, and yet God has been merciful. And so Moses has tasted a, like an appetizer about how good God is, and he's saying, oh, I got to have more of this, God. Show me your glory. And the Lord says, well, I can't really do that. Why not? Because in your sinful, corrupted flesh, if you see my glory full on, you will die. No man can see me and live. But I will accommodate you by showing you my glory indirectly. Kind of like in the way that, you know, we've had storms kind of recently, not major ones, but there's been even lightning that I've seen in the far off distance. I didn't see the bolt, but I saw the flash. And I heard the sound, the boom. And really what's so capturing about the way Moses is going to encounter the glory of God is that he doesn't get to really see anything, but he gets a glory that he can hear. Namely, in the proclamation of God's name, the explanation of his character. Look at verse 5 of 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. You notice Lord there in many of your Bibles is all caps. That stands for God's personal name, Yahweh. He's proclaiming God's personal name in a personal way and what it means. And so verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. But before we get any further, you just got to get this. We encounter the glory and character of God through a proclaimed word. There is nothing that follows in the description of what takes place in this event here. There is nothing about what Moses actually saw. Namely, because he saw nothing. But it's all about what he heard. And it wasn't merely that he got the right pronunciation of Yahweh or Jehovah or whatever. But it was that his character, God's character was explained. His character was extrapolated. His character was explored and exposited for Moses. 
This is the glory of God. This is how you get to know God. This is how God's character is seen and experienced and marveled at and believed. You hear it in a word. In contrast, get this, God has not chosen to reveal himself in a picture book. God didn't wait till 2024 to show us his glory in a picture or on some YouTube video when those kind of things would be available. He's not come to show you what his glory is in a photograph or a picture or recording. We have it in a book, and that was on purpose because that's how he revealed himself to Moses through a word. You're not going to experience the glory of God through the Shroud of Turin, you see, or the Chosen miniseries, or Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. You don't encounter the glory of God by a sight, but by a word. So that's why we preach the Bible at Grace Bible Church. It's not because we're old-fashioned, though we might be. It's not because we're stuck in tradition but because this is the way you encounter the glory of God, but through a word. And I, we would be robbing you of that opportunity trying some other way, some other means. You want to know God? You want to know God more in 2024? Get into that word. Come and sit under the word proclaimed and heralded about the grace of our God. But you will not know him so clearly in any other way. Okay, that was an aside. But an implication. So what did he hear about God as we looked at verse 6? We find here then seven characteristics that showcase the greatness of God. And really, there's six and one to make seven. And we'll look here at the first six. And it could be summarized by what we said, that he's a gracious God. And let's hear this again. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What makes God so glorious? Why do we say he's so great, so worthy of worship, praise, or devotion? Well, it's these seven characteristics listed here. And let us tackle the first six, and we'll get to the seventh on our next aspect of what we need. But first off, what does it say about God is that he is a God of mercy. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, or you might say compassionate here. He is a God who is inclined to the suffering, and he's sympathetic to the sufferer. He, he comes and wants to meet that need. He's very sympathetic Second, he's a God of grace. He's merciful and gracious. This means he gives good to those that don't deserve it. And he doles out in his grace far more than you would think. He pours out his good grace. And of course, this is our only hope before his holiness. That's where we began. Third, he is a God who's slow to anger. He's not easily provoked, that means. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't, as we say, have a short fuse. He can tolerate our wrongs for a really, really long time. Fourth, he's a God who doesn't just show steadfast love and faithfulness, like on occasion. He abounds in them. They define him. 
Steadfast love and faithfulness define this God, this committed, unbending, unending devotion and love, commitment to his own. This defines our God. It's also captured there by his faithfulness, that he's true to his word, to who he is, his commitment. In other words, you can count on this God, Yahweh. He will never fail you. Fifth, as we turn to verse 7, He's a God then who keeps steadfast love for thousands. As we've seen, this is probably more like thousands of generations. His love, His grace, His commitment to you lasts longer than a thousand lifetimes. Certainly a lot longer than yours. You can't outlive or outlast His steadfast love. You can't find the end of His good favor. When He sets it on you, it will be there when you need it. And then sixth, he is just the kind of God then that forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He forgives it. He carries it away and moves it away from you. David meditates on this very declaration of Moses in Psalm 103, and he explores it like this. He says in Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And then as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is our God. He goes out of his way then here too to list all of the categories of sin. Do you see that? Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Any offense you can think of, any kind of wrong you can do against God, he's saying, I can still forgive that. No sin in that way is too big for him to carry it away. And again, the whole point isn't, you know, God might forgive once in a while, or that he might have the ability to be kind and gracious, that he might possibly forgive This is the very definition of him. This is the very thing he does. It defines him. He is then the forgiving and merciful God. And you get this. This is what makes him so marvelous to us. So different, so unlike any God you might put in your imagination. You can't make him better than this God, Yahweh. His grace is what makes him so glorious. This is what makes him so different. Again, to steal from Isaiah 55, there's this statement in there, his ways are higher than yours and his thoughts are higher than your ways. And we say that when we run through a mystery in life and we don't know what God's doing, well, his ways are higher than ours. That's all true. But go back and look at that this afternoon, Isaiah 55. What's his point? I'm more gracious than you realize because I'm not like you. I abound in steadfast love and mercy. This is what makes him so different, so holy, so good. This is good news. This is great news. This shows you that the God of the Old Testament is the one of the new. As we saw last week, Jesus is full of grace and truth. That's a summary of really all of these components put together. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of this. And this is the truth about God, that he's full of grace and truth that God's people have been holding on to. This is why we would believe all the way to the end. Because we believe and trust in a God like this who's faithful through all generations. Think about where we've been in Exodus. He's saying, I want to be your God and you will be my people and I will love you. And they said, forget it. We're going to make an idol. And God says, what have you done? 
Okay, let's try this again. I'm going to make a new covenant, a new relationship with you. But if that new relationship, this do-over, rests on how well we can keep these commandments and not break these stone tablets, if your relationship with God ultimately will rest on how well you will obey Him, you got no hope. The only hope you have is if you have a relationship with a God like this. And that's what God's people held on to throughout the Old Testament and into the New. Because really, this passage is the, the pinnacle moment of God revealing Himself, at least in the Old Testament, until Jesus came. I, I picture the, the testimony of Scripture as kind of like a still lake. And then this rock of Mount Sinai drops in with God's revelation of who I am as the Lord. Drops in the center of that lake, sending ripples throughout all of Scripture. Because you see, these very words get reprised, repeated again and again and again. This is our hope. It's that you're a God like this. So listen to this. Over and over again, these words come up again and again because our only hope is if God is just like this. So for example, Numbers 14 verse 18 reads, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Does that sound familiar? Nehemiah 9, verse 17, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and so you did not forsake them. Psalm 86, verse 15, but you, O Lord, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Joel chapter 2, return to the Lord your God. Why? Because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Does that sound familiar? They heard it here on Mount Sinai from Moses. Amen. Oh, by the way, there are many others. I'm going to list them. Second <laughs> Corinthians verse 30, verse 9, Psalm 33, verse 5, Psalm 57, verse 10, Psalm 86, verse 5, Psalm 98, verse 3, Psalm 103, verses 7 and 8, Psalm 108, verse 4, <gasps> Psalm 112, verse 4, Psalm 116, verse 5, Psalm 138, verse 2, Micah 7, 18, and actually many others. Amen. Our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think of God. Well, here's what God wants you to think about. Him. When you came in this morning and came through those doors and you thought, my God is like this, was this your view of God? And I submit to you, if it wasn't, whatever other notion of God you have in your mind is not as good as this one. And I mean, how many times does he have to tell us? And apparently still more. Why? Because in part, he is a God of justice too. We'll turn to that next. In just a moment, that he's a God who has to punish sin. That's the last attribute. That's the seventh. But even then, do you see it's six and one? Even the way God presents himself? It's grace, 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 grace. Now we can talk about justice? Why does God not put it, you know, it's, it's not weighted evenly. Why does he put it like that? Because he knows the kind of God you need is him, a God full of grace. Because we sinners, we mess ups, we need that kind of grace so badly. And he knows that. And he knows our tendency to run from him in our sin. You know, like we did in the garden, we go hide when we hear him coming. And what is he doing by telling us this, that he's a God of grace? He's wooing us back and saying, get out from hiding in those fig leaves and come to me. 
Why? Because I'm good. That's why he tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence, because of what Christ has done, let us draw near to the throne of grace that you might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because why? He's just the kind of God to give it. This is the gracious God you need. Furthermore, you need also a satisfied God. Second half of verse 7. A satisfied God. What do we mean? I think you'll see it by the time we get to the end of this point, but... He's not only gracious, he's just and righteous too. And admittedly, this creates quite a tension. But we need this aspect of God too. We need him to be just. Because if his grace, his grace is not right, it's not good, if it's also at the same time not just and righteous. So we turn to the latter half of verse 7. And we hear, as you might say, the other side of God and his character. Really, what you see is the holy balance here. Look at verse 6. It opens with the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious. And then we turn to verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but... And right now, I think we're all like, "Uh uh-oh. Who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. The contrast is stark. I mean, it's serious and clear, isn't it? I mean, he was just talking about forgiveness, and then the next thing he says is, oh, and by the way, the guilty, there's no way they're going to go without punishment. Uh Uh-oh. How does this work? Well, for most of us, it doesn't work. So we just pick what side of God we like better. We, we take the, the three-dimensional full view of God's glory and we just smash it. We don't even make it two-dimensional. We make it one-dimensional. And we define the one aspect of God by all the others. That's not how our God is. What does this look like to look at the extremes? On the one hand, we might tend to lean on His grace and only define Him by this. Since we'll say things like, well, love is love after all, whatever it is. Or conversely, we'll lean into His justice. And what does this look like? This is probably more the temptation for those in this room, the religious types. And what does it look like when we lean on his justice? Well, we end up condemning everybody. Or, maybe even more common, we are constantly condemning ourselves. Always carrying around loads of guilt. To illustrate it again, one view imagines God saying this about himself, as one pastor put it, Oh, Yahweh, the listener, the listener, A God affirming and understanding, never angry, and abounding in steadfast appreciation and support. That's not quite right, is it? But nor is the other view that thinks God is something like, oh, Yahweh, the condemner, the condemner, the God who always disapproves, abounds in dissatisfaction, and is about ready to explode in righteous anger. That is not right about God either. So how does this work? How then can God be at the same time overflowing with grace and forgiving and yet by no means would he ever clear the guilty because he's just? Because you understand, a God who, or a judge, who always forgives is not a very good judge. If you just let the wicked go free, you then imply at least that you 
condone, if not love, wickedness. And if that's not yet clear to you, put yourself in the scenario where someone kills your whole family and then the judge hears the case, has all the evidence against him, but goes, but I'm a gracious judge. We'll forgive the murderer and let him go free. What would that be? A perversion of justice. That would be anything but good. So which is it? Can God be good? And can God be just? And, and I submit to you, this is a hope that wasn't really fully realized in the Old Testament. I think the Old Testament believers were wrestling with how might this work? But as we come to the new, this gets resolved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where the cross shows us the full-throated view orbed of the glory of God. To show you that, I want to have you turn with me to the book of Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 3. I'm going to turn to Paul's explanation of the gospel in Romans 3, chiefly looking at verses 21 to 26. And others have said it, and I think I might agree, this is perhaps the most important chapter in all of the Bible. And maybe expressly this paragraph, Romans 3, 21 to 26. There's so much here. I'd love to explain it in more detail later, I guess. To give you a summary, if you just even glance your eyes up on the page, you'll see that he has been highlighting how no one's good. All have sinned, such that he says in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. And you're like, yeah, those people out there, they are real jerks, aren't they? No, he mentions at the end of verse 12, not even one. No one in here is an exception. Such that he puts it down in verse 20 like this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Again, think of a courtroom. Think of a judge. He's going to have to give a verdict. To justified would mean he's declaring you righteous. You're in the right. Well, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law just shows you how much of a rebel you really are. There's no way to look at the law and think, how can I ever be right with God? And that's true about everyone in this room. We're all guilty. We've all committed sins. And there's nothing you can do to fix that. Such that Paul reasons, well, if we are going to have a righteousness with God, we have to get away from our sins and get around that somehow. There's got to be some other way than by our works to get right with God. And thankfully there is. He gets to this summary in verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, that's all of us. So if we're going to be right with God, verse 24, we have to be justified, declared righteous by His grace as a gift. It can't be by what you do. It has to be given to you. And how could that ever happen? Well, end of verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And again, we saw this all through the Exodus with this redemption of God buying his people back by paying a price, a ransom to set them free from their sins. And that's what he's done at the cross. But how does this work? Well, get this. It has to be alone by grace, by mercy, not by what we do. We have to receive his grace as a gift. That's really what it means. 
can't be earned, can't be by what you do. This is good news. Yet, this does not quite resolve the tension yet. God may be so gracious to just decide to favor us, decide to forgive us, decide to absolve us from our sins, but still, doesn't that make him a bad judge? If I'm guilty and he chooses to forgive me, isn't he then being evil and being lenient to me? Condoning my wrongs? No, he doesn't. And the cross is the answer for that. Listen to Paul explain. Verse 25. Whom, so that's referring back to Jesus Christ in verse 24. Whom God put him, that's Christ, forward as a key term here, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Again, that key term there is propitiation. This really is the answer. Now, as a tidbit for us who've been through Exodus, interestingly, this word propitiation here in 325 is the very word used in the Old Testament translation of Exodus in the Greek of the atonement cover. Remember, you had the Ark of the Covenant and you had the mercy seat on top. Well, that was also called the propitiation, the propitiation place. The place where God turns in favor to you and shows you mercy happens here in an Old Testament sense, but it really happens at the cross when Jesus spilled his blood. That was the place of sacrifice. Jesus himself served at the propitiation. What's the point? Where God's wrath was poured out and satisfied. This is the key. His wrath was gratified, satisfied, fulfilled. So get this, what does this mean? God does not on just a whim say, forgive you. He does not arbitrarily, irrespective of concerns for justice and truth, say, ah, I'll forgive him, he seems like a good kid. No, there are no good kids, by the way. And yet he can forgive and still be a good judge. Why? Because he still pours out all of his punishment for sin. It just didn't fall on you, it fell on Jesus Christ. Jesus took our sin so he could take all the penalty and all the wrath. And so what does this mean? He can still be a good judge because he poured out all of his justice and he can still be the justifier. He can declare righteous those who are ungodly who trust in Jesus Christ. Look at this. He resolves it in verse 26. This was to show God's righteousness, Jesus being the propitiation, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. You know, if you look through history, God seemed to be really merciful. It seems like, oh, maybe he's not a good judge after all. You could call his righteous character into question. But then verse 26, the cross resolves it. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, again, because he poured out all of his justice, and the justifier declaring righteous, again, as Romans 4, 5 puts it, declares righteous the ungodly. How can he do that and be a good judge? Well, because he still pours out all the justice, just not on you, but on his son. That's the only way this can work. That's the only way the greatness of our God can be so fully displayed and understood, but through the cross of Jesus Christ, where he is fully just and still totally merciful. This is how our God alone can be still abounding in mercy and grace. 
alone, how our God can still love the truth and love justice. A God who by no means clears the guilty. It's all because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only way he can still be both. So let's take in this view of God and understand we don't need a one-dimensional God. You don't have to pick. Is he, is he merciful or is he truthful? Is he full of grace or is he full of truth? You get both in Jesus Christ and his cross. You get a God who not only forgives sin, but he's going to come back and take all the wrongs in this world and make them right because he knows they're wrong. That only works because of the cross. The glory of God are seen so supremely there if you would rest your soul in Jesus Christ. That's the God we need. And he comes to meet our deepest need. And so when this God has come, how do we respond? Well, we go back to Exodus and we would do well to follow Moses. He shows us the way. How we respond to a God of glory like this. And in summary, it is humble dependence. Total reliance. Total reliance upon a God like this because you won't find a better God anywhere. Moses' response consists in two components, first in what Moses does and then what he says. Let's see first what he does in response to this revelation of God. Again, that he didn't see, but he only heard. Verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And the idea is not with worship here. He started singing a praise song, though that wouldn't be entirely inappropriate. The whole point of here in worship is that he physically got on his face, prostrate, head bowed on the ground. He could get no lower before the majesty and greatness of God. Sometimes before the very glory of God like this, the best thing you can do is be quiet and get on your face. And I would submit to you, if God's abundant mercy has not humbled you like this ever, has not moved you, has not moved you to see God is great and good, even when you were as nothing and a rebel, and though he still loved you anyway, if you have yet to encounter that, then you have yet to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May our hearts marvel at this mercy, even as it takes us very low. But there we will see our greatness of our God. Moses shows us more of his heart as they does next open his mouth. And this too is instructive for us. It gives us the proper attitude of worship. Look next to verse 9. And Moses said, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Now, you just got to notice about why Moses is so insistent that God would go with him. Remember, that's kind of where it all began in, in this last chapter. God, you got to go with us. You got to be in our midst. We need to have you with us. But notice the reason he gives here about why this kind of God must go with them. Go in the midst of us for, here's the reason, it is a stiff-necked people. You need to see the gracious irony of this. Look back with me to earlier in chapter 33. Look at verses 3, and you can glance and see verse 5. Earlier, when they had just sinned and made the golden calf, 
God says, the very reason I can't go with you is because you're stiff-necked. Look at verse 3. I will not go up among you, God says. Why? Lest I consume you on the way for your stiff-necked people. But now Moses has seen all of God and he's saying, it's because we're a stiff-necked people. It's because we're sinners. It's because I'm so bad. That's why I need you. I need a God just like you. And I can have no other. I need a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love because I got no hope with another God. You are the very kind of God we need. You are the kind of God that seeks and saves the lost. You are the kind of God that moves heaven and earth, actually comes down from heaven and seeks sinners out and says, I will forgive you, come to me. What we need is a God of grace, don't we? And when we see that, we're going to hold on and never let go. And he said, if I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And so pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for, our, for your inheritance. No other God will do. No other object of devotion, no other love of your life can do what the Lord here does. A God who would forgive in Jesus Christ. Take all your sins, your warts and all, all your faults, all your abiding failings, and still show mercy. There is no God like this. No God like Jesus Christ. What other God would you try and trade him for? Yeah, that's what Israel does, right? When they made this golden calf, traded it for a cow. And yet we do the same things. We make idols in our heart and we trade Jesus for something else. Something that we're more devoted to, something that we love above him. We, we trace this true God for a false one. A, a false God, get it. Oh, these false gods we put up in our hearts, they preach promises to us. They preach life to us. The only thing is they don't hold any water. They don't actually give your life. They steal it from you. You know, whether it's the God of security, the God that says that you can have everything in your life safe and secure, well, often that gives way to anxiety, fretting about the future. If you haven't felt it yet, anxiety is a horrible master. Or maybe you might try to be devoted to the God of money thinking that's the answer. That'll give me the pleasure I need. That'll give me the security I want, right, related to that. This is the God that'll make me happy. But another name for that God is what? Greed, which gives way to selfishness and thoughtlessness, not helping others, but helping yourself only. Again, that's quite a terrible God. Or you might go hide long after the God of pleasure, from lust to gluttony to drugs to exercise to body image, whatever else. But what do you find? You're never satisfied. You need it. You need the next hit. You need the next high. You need the, the next pound loss, whatever it is. Always need and want more. Because you weren't designed for this. You were designed for a better God, the true God, the risen Jesus Christ. Why would we trade any of that for him? Why would we trade him for the fountain of life? the source of mercy and forgiveness, and the accompanying peace and joy that he brings. That's what we sacrifice when we give anything up for him. Yes. Do you not see the need that you have for this God? He still offers you his mercy. 
Turn from that sin. Return to him on his gracious terms. That means you do nothing. He did it all because he gets all the glory and we're glad to give it to him. Because you get in the end, that's the great song of heaven. We're all going to join that new song to our gracious Savior, the risen Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And it goes like this. This is Revelation 5, verses 13 and 14. And this is the chorus of all creation. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits under the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's do that in our hearts now. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, before your greatness, what can we do but fall down and worship? Worship that you are the very God that we need. And yet, you're the, though you're the God we need, we turn so many other places. Forgive us. We set those down and we come back to you. We come back to you because we know because of your cross, you can receive us. Uh, you took care of all of our sins there. If we trust in you, and you've shown yourself a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. May we put away that sin, those other gods, and walk in obedience, because it's for our good, because that's where we get to know you. Do this for the glory of your name, for the church that you bought with your very blood. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.